Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand into the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. This is God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you right now. We thank you for uh, just the Lord's day. We thank you for uh, this day that exists for us to come before you as your people, to reflect on you, to kind of measure all that we experienced this week and just kind of lay it down before you. Uh, we would hear what you have to say. Um, God, please help me to be a good vessel about this, uh, this word that you've prepared uh, I do pray that we would um, all have open hearts in receiving it, even I myself, because uh, we all need to hear this word. Uh, may you just bless each and every single person here. May their hearts be open to hearing what you have prepared for them. And uh, may all of this just be a beautiful offering before you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The good old feel-good story of Judas. Um, there's a couple things I want to say before we dive into this passage. Um, the first one is that uh, this, this I'm sure most of us are pretty familiar with the topic of Judas and kind of the ins and outs of what this story is, but I just want to say, just as like a prerequisite, um, we, we are going to have to talk about suicide. Um, that's a pretty big part of Judas's story and kind of the grand conclusion of his story. And I just want to acknowledge that because that can be a very, very sensitive topic for some people. And so just please be considerate of what, you know, you may need in that. And if that may be something that is pressing for you, just please be considerate of that. Um, I have no intention of this sermon ending on the despair that suicide often accompanies, but that can still be a difficult thing. So I want to acknowledge that first and foremost. Second is that Judas, um, even outside of his obvious betrayalness, uh, is a very controversial figure. There's lots of people who have adapted some very interesting views about Judas over the 2,000 years of church history. And golly, I, I wish I could address all of them. And there's so many things that I feel are almost like these, you know, it's like walking into a living room where the picture frame is kind of like at a weird angle. Like, I wish I had the time in this sermon to kind of like straighten each of those out, and I can't, but I would encourage you that if after this sermon you feel like there's something that you would like to discuss or, or dive deeper in, feel free to find me. I'd, I'd love to, to talk about this further. So with those two kind of disclaimers aside, let's jump in. I'm not sure whether to consider the story of Judas a great crime or a great tragedy. Uh, it seems that the, the truth is probably in the intermingling, that it's probably 
some version of both. Uh, as we've been going through the past series, the series over the past few weeks, we've been talking through guys like Peter, who, you know, have a lot of strengths and a lot of faults at the same time, but ultimately his story is one of a man who, in spite of his many failings, was able to, to be stood firm by Jesus and was able to serve Christ and devote his life to that ministry until he died. And we see that with John, and we see that with Andrew, and we see that with Matthew, and we see all these individuals who had followed Jesus for these three years of his ministry, and who all from these different backgrounds, different uh, nationalities at times, different cultural backgrounds and contexts, all of them were able to kind of sit and nestle within to the body and the church of Jesus, and they served him for the rest of their earthly lives. But there is one significant exception to that, and it's this dude named Judas. And there are a handful of things that we know about Judas. We, we kind of like to do a little, little mini biography just to kind of get a little bit of background. We, we know a few things about Judas aside from his obvious betrayal stuff. Uh, we know that he was called by Jesus to follow him, and Judas responded to that. We know that um, Judas walked fairly faithfully with Jesus for the years of his ministry. I, I think often of this, the, the, the time in John 6 when Jesus kind of scares off the crowds when he talks about how you'll have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and a lot of people were like, this is weird, and they ran away. Judas actually stayed, um, maybe a sign of him just wanting to fit in with the original 12, or, or maybe some, some semblance of something else there. Uh, we know that at, one, at least at one point, Judas was sent out with the rest of the other disciples to uh, preach the gospel in different areas. We know that Judas probably uh, preached the gospel. We know that he probably performed miracles, and and then we know a few less flattering things about Judas. We know that he was the money handler in the group and that according to John's gospel, he was known to trim a little bit off the top. You know, don't we all? No, we don't. We shouldn't. Um, but Judas, Judas was acknowledged to be a thief and he was, he was dishonest with what he did with his, uh, with his finances, with the finances of the group, I should say. And the rest of Judas's life, at least as we see in Scripture, we're, we're pretty familiar with. Uh, we know that at a certain point, and we don't really know motivation, we can get into that more later, um, Judas met with a group of chief priests, and he discussed with them this idea of betraying Jesus. And, and, and even this concept was kind of interesting to me, but because Jesus was in Jerusalem and it was Passover and there were lots of big crowds, they still wanted to kill Jesus, but the crowds were so big, there was danger that the riot that they would incite could be dangerous. And there was the fact that not a lot of people knew what Jesus looked like. They couldn't just pull up his Instagram. So they needed someone on the inside who'd kind of help them out in that regard. And so Judas, it's not like they, they, they advertise this, but Judas came and he met with them. He got 30 pieces of silver for promising to do this. If you're asking how much is 30 pieces of silver today, 
Um, the, the, that's a long rabbit hole that I went down in preparing for this sermon. It's very, people really don't know. Turns out keeping track of prices on things for 2,000 years is really difficult. It could be $90. It could be like $10,000. But here's the thing. If I asked you, hey, uh, could I betray one of your worst enemies and have them tortured and executed in a public square and I'll give you 10 grand for it? I think most of us would probably still be like, no, I'm okay. Um, I, don't, I don't think I necessarily want to do that. And so Judas betrayed Jesus. He, he made the plans to do so for 30 pieces of silver. Afterward, Judas participated in the Lord's Supper where Jesus, you know, explained the Lord's Supper, the communion, which we're going to be taking part in later. And he also says that one person amongst the 12 would be the one to betray him. The other disciples were like, oh, shoot, is it, is it, is it, me? Is it, is it him? Like, like, who is it? Like, they had no idea, which is really, really interesting. And then Judas is like, it's, it's me, right? Which is just like, you know it's you, dude. Like, why would you even ask? It's almost like, what were you trying to accomplish? Jesus says, yeah. And then he says, there's this, there's this interesting moment between Jesus and Judas where, where Jesus says, what, you, what you're going to do, just do it quickly. And Judas runs off. And everyone else in the group thinks that Judas is getting ready to go, like, give money to some poor people or something. They just assume Judas is just doing his thing, just doing his good guy thing. But instead, Judas is going to get the masses to arrest Jesus. The last part of Judas's story is that at a certain point when Jesus was arrested and brought before Pontius Pilate, he's filled with this deep, deep sense of remorse and unable to handle that remorse. He kills himself. I, I think of all of the biblical figures that we reflect on today, and I, and I know I've said this several times, but I still feel the need to say it again. A lot of us, especially many of us who were kind of raised in these like VBS-like circles of church, we learned to kind of tag on these very one-dimensional like faces for every individual in the Bible, where it's like, Daniel, he's brave. Uh, David, he liked songs. Like, you know, we, we tag all these very like, like shallow like characteristics to these people in the Bible, but these people in the Bible are people in the Bible. They have uh, backgrounds and families, and they have, they have different experiences that shape their worldview and how they understand things. They have ambitions and goals and cultures and jokes and all these different things that make them who they are. Could you try again? Sorry. Um, that was really weird. And so... All of these people are not the one-dimensional, kind of one-sided figures that we sometimes reduce them into in these, like, biblical child book ways. And Judas, I think, is maybe the, the biggest example of that. If you, uh, if you pull up, like, Judas in art or Judas in paintings, he's always, like, he's, like, hunched over. And his eyes are like real narrow and he looks a little like disfigured and he looks like, like you could obviously look at any painting and with no awareness of the Bible, if someone said, hey, could you point out the evil guy? They'd be like, oh, it's that guy for sure. <laughs> like he looks like mildly disfigured. He's always got this like shadow cast on him while Jesus is like super bright and glowy, like to indicate that like this is the bad guy. The darkness is symbolic. Like... There's so much like melodrama in how we define who Judas was. 
it's almost easy to, to fall into this like default view that like Judas as a person had one ambition and goal his entire life. And it was that one day he would betray the son of God. And after that, he was done. And that's just like such an unreasonable conclusion to come to. I believe that he was a person. I believe that he had several dimensions and motivators in his life that determined his actions, even his act of betrayal. And of course, one thing that has to be admitted when we talk about what makes people people are not just the things that make us people, but also the sin that infects everything that we are as well. Judas wasn't a dude who had like 100% nonstop positive potential. He, like everyone, like just like his peers, was also anchored with the burden of sin that affected his intentions, his thoughts, and his actions. And so it's hard to speak conclusively on someone like Judas, because it'd be really easy to be like, um, just preach a whole sermon about the one really, really evil disciple who just ruined everything, but actually made everything work. Like, I feel like that would be easy, but I feel like that would be irresponsible. And it's hard because... The story of Judas begs one huge question. Why? Why did he betray Jesus? And there are plenty of people, plenty of scars, plenty of articles you can find that will tell you why. And they're, and they're all guesses. They're all just shots in the dark. Oh, maybe, uh, maybe, uh. Maybe Judas was mad that Jesus wasn't this like military king and so he betrayed him because he didn't meet his expectations. Maybe, or maybe not, because it doesn't say that. Maybe, maybe Jesus just like, maybe they kept, maybe there was like this game that they would play and Jesus never let Judas win and Judas got real upset about it. Okay, like there's, we, could, we could throw guesses in the air as long as we want to, but at the end of the day, we simply don't know. There's one really interesting view uh, that is maybe my favorite, but Judas betrayed Jesus because he knew that he had to, because if he didn't betray Jesus, then the gospel couldn't come into play. And that's just like, how, how did you even come to this conclusion? <laughs> like, that's not, ooh, that's wrong. Um, no one told Judas, hey man, I know you don't want to, but could you just, could you, could you fall on the sword for me, man, please? Like, come on. So what do we learn from Judas? What is there to say about Judas? Like I said, I won't be able to unpack everything that I want to, but I'm going to try to hit at least uh, three points, technically two. One is like my conclusion, but we're going to try this. First, the isolation of Judas. The isolation of Judas. Like I mentioned before and, and from the passage that Julie read from, when Jesus was sitting with his disciples. He said, one of you is going to betray me. And if Judas was the hunched over, like cloud of darkness over his head constantly, just like evil snickering man, then everyone would be like, oh yeah, duh, Jesus, it's Judas. But they had no idea. They were like, it could be me. It could be, I, I really don't know. I don't know who's going to betray you. And there's a lot to say about that in and of itself, that they didn't know who was going to betray Jesus. But one thing it says, which I want to highlight right now, is that it means that Judas had never told a soul what he was experiencing. 
that Judas was dealing with the greatest scandal of sin that a human being would experience, the literal betrayal of the only innocent man to walk this earth, and he kept that to himself. Closed his lips, didn't say a word. I think that's extremely dangerous. I, I, just, I just think of like, these, these 12 men like walked together for three years. They shared meals together for three years. They, they, they laid out in fields together. They probably had, had jokes. They probably, they probably knew intimate details about each other's lives. I can imagine that at least, one, at least one disciple, when he heard and saw what was happening with Judas, would be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But Judas kept all of that locked down. When we think about the concept of isolation, it's, it's, not, it's not a universally bad thing. Isolation can also mean solitude, and solitude is what Jesus had a lot of because he would spend that time in prayer. He would spend that time with God. There's nothing wrong in, 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 a, in a big sense with being isolated, but this was not that. This was someone who intentionally closed themselves off to every single person around them, including Jesus because they, they couldn't bear sharing for whatever reason, right? This like nagging feeling of guilt that we just choose to bury for actions, either past or future, that we just keep locked down. It just reminds me, and it should be a reminder to all of us that Christians were not designed to live as islands, in the world. Right now, right, literally right now, is the experience of our lives as Christians in unity, together, in fellowship, spending time with each other. This is what the life of a believer, the life of a child of the Most High should be, one spent in unity with others. We should not be spent in isolation. Isolation is where many have perished and where Judas certainly did. If we look to this passage from Hebrews 10, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is, it is very essential that we draw close to community. And we should spend time together, and we should laugh together, and we should go to, to, to great, fantastic restaurants together, and we should share our lives and our experiences together. But we should also be honest when the person says, how are you doing lately? Maybe not always, maybe not to everyone. I think that someone who's just like, kind of mindlessly vulnerable to like every single person, that may not be the most discerning thing. But if you look through your catalog in your mind of the people that you're closest to, and there's not a single person who knows what your struggles are, difficult times that you've lived through in your life, something that you may be dreading in the future, 
then that may be an area that Satan is going to exploit in your life. That is certainly what happened to poor Judas. The interesting second part of that whole command is that we as a community have to be able to endure the confessions and the openness of the people around us. See, the impression that many people have of Christians is that they kind of, uh, they, 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 they never wear any of their vulnerabilities or their sins in a way that others can see. They, they, they feel like the way to live Christianly is to project yourself in this light of almost perfection. And so when you come around a person like that, I mean, shoot, imagine it. You're walking into a community of people who could never really express a struggle or, you know, what, I, what, I've, what I've experienced and been guilty of in the past is like the confession of like the super vague stuff where it's like, guys, I, I, need, I, need, I need prayer. I've been really struggling with pride lately. What the heck does that mean? Like, <laughs> or like pride because you've been like uh, not, not listening to your boss at work? or pride because you've been arguing with your relatives, or pride because you've been, uh, you know, doing something in, in, in dark areas that you shouldn't be doing. Like, don't, don't, the, the pride. I really need some humility. No, say what's going on. Like, again, you can, you can be, be particular about who you share those types of vulnerabilities with, but I see a way where it's just like this fake vulnerability. And it's like, nah, dude, like, Let's be honest. You don't have to be honest with everybody, but you should have a couple people in your life, probably outside of your marriage as well. You should be honest with your wife. You should be honest with your husband, but you should have other people in that circle as well. So it's very important that we, as Christians, like we're not projecting this fake image of perfection because it's not going to encourage others to be honest around us. And it means that they're much more likely to continue to just simmer in the struggles that they're living through rather than be honest. And we have to be prepared as individuals and as ambassadors of Jesus that when people come to us and say, I am really having a hard time I am really struggling. I'm going through this. I'm going through that. I see this on the horizon and it fills me with dread. We as individuals, we as ambassadors of Jesus need to be prepared to offer them the gospel. Not the gospel of, well, maybe just, you know, pick yourself up, try a little bit harder. And not the gospel of, I don't really see why this is that big of a deal. But like the gospel of like, put your trust, put your faith in Christ. Like, and see how his forgiveness will wash away the difficult things. And that doesn't mean that's all you say, you know? If somebody says, I'm having a really hard time, I haven't eaten in three days, and Thomas says, oh, brother, I just want you to know that God loves you even though you haven't eaten in three days. I would really hope that Thomas would <laughs> buy me a sandwich. And then we can still have that conversation, but acknowledge the needs that I have as well. Second point. I think one of the things that keeps us out of community in meaningful ways, that kept Judas out of community in meaningful ways, was shame. So this second point is the shame of Judas. There's one story that I feel people often forget when it comes to the story of, of, of Judas, 
And it's that after Jesus is taken before Pontius Pilate, Judas returns to the leaders that paid him. And he said, I have sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And he tried to give the coins back. And they, they were like, what does this have to do with us? Like, what's, what's done is done, pal. Like, you giving us these coins aren't going to get your friend released. So they had no consolation for him. And he threw the coins down, probably in this deep sense of frustration. Judas was carrying the weight of the sin that he had committed against Jesus. And I can only imagine that it was crippling. He didn't go off laughing into some dark corner, like rubbing his hands together, satisfied that he had done what he did. No, he was crushed by it. And he went to the people who he co-conspired with to at the very least empathize with the shame that he was feeling and they had no empathy for him. They had no consolation for him. They had no way to remove his shame. And without anyone to take away his shame, Judas killed himself. I think that uh, the realization behind that, ah, uh, man. I've said this before, and, I, and I, I feel the need to say it again. We, we don't know how to deal with shame. We don't know how to deal with shame. And I think the evidence for that is why it's often so easy for us to deflect and to put up these like massive walls and barriers whenever someone is trying to bring something against us. We don't know what to do with shame. Judas certainly didn't. And the sad thing is that like, if he had just understood like an ounce of what Jesus was speaking to him, he would have known, for one, yes, I did betray innocent blood, but he will not stay in this grave forever. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I think that the reason we don't know how to deal with shame is because we're so afraid of what that shame will say about us if it's right. I, I don't know how to deal with someone telling me that um, I am selfish because what if it's true? What if I really am as selfish as I'm afraid that I am? What if I really am as, as inconsiderate as I might just be. All of those things become this like horrible, like swirling tornado and we're afraid and we don't want to acknowledge that we could actually be really bad. And this is the terrible reality of our human condition. Like I said, as human beings, there's so much that weaves and stitches us together, but one common denominator, one common thread throughout every human being is that all of us are broken, each of us, by sin. We are desperately selfish. We hurt people around us intentionally and unintentionally. We bend rules to fit what we want for the most part. 
And we are just very, very imperfect. Jeremiah 17 tells us the heart, the heart, our, our like decision maker, the core, the nucleus, everything that we are, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I think a good test for this and how, how we're like a good test for how we are able to interact with shame is ask yourself, when's the last time you said to someone, you're right, I'm sorry. Just acknowledging like, I, I, I did do that wrong. I did fail you and I'm sorry. Or I, I mean, many of us and myself very much included, many of us can kind of like morph our prayer life into this like constant recognition of like, okay, what am I praying for? All right, well, this person's sick. I'm gonna pray for them, boom. Uh, I've got this thing going on tomorrow. I'm gonna pray for that, boom. And so we're always praying like for these outward things that we need. But when's the last time we honestly looked before God and said, God, I failed you. I failed I, I should have done this differently. I should have done it better, and I didn't. And yes, it's because I'm a sinner, but it's also because I, I didn't want to do what I was supposed to do. I think that if we recoil from those two scenarios, it's a sign that we may have this like strong, strong defense against shame. And I mean, honestly, when we look at Judas, like you can say, well, this is my example. Judas was, was ruined by shame. I don't want to do anything with that. And so where do we go from there? We go right here, my third point. The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. At the end of Judas's life, he was aware of the great injustice that he had partaken in. He had confessed to the religious leaders that he had betrayed an innocent man that he had sent him to his death. But it, in a sense, reminds me of not Judas's story, but Peter's. Because when Peter, well, uh, Peter, Peter and, and, and the gang were kind of hanging out, and this was before Jesus got arrested, and Peter was doing what he likes to do, which was kind of flex about how good of a disciple he was to Jesus. And he's like, Jesus, I, psh, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to follow you no matter what. Like, you'll never have to worry about me. I am devoted. And Jesus said, I think you're going to betray me three times um, before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter's like, not nah, crazy, man. Not never going to happen. But it did. It did. And, that, and that's also a very heart-wrenching story to see Peter just do exactly what he didn't want to do but was like inevitably going to do. Not because Jesus told him it was going to happen, but because Peter was exactly what Jesus knew him to be, which was a sinner. And Peter was was it, it was like an arrow through Peter's heart when this happened. It was brutal. When that, that passage when it says that he went away and he wept bitterly is just a punch in the chest, that verse. And so we have these two men, Peter and Judas, who have both in great ways broken the expectation that Jesus had for them as his followers. Both of them felt 
remorse and conviction and, and knew that they needed something to cover that for them. Peter was dumb. He went back fishing for a couple days. Then Jesus resurrected and they had a really meaningful heart-to-heart where Jesus was able to kind of reaffirm Peter by getting Peter to kind of say, yeah, I, I, I do love you, actually, even though I was pretty dumb just now. But Judas didn't have a place to turn for that. And the sad thing is, is that the statement that I just made is not true. He did. It'd be like, Judas, just don't kill yourself for three days, man. Wait for this guy to get back up. This might not be the end for your story. But the shame was so just, just all-encompassing. He didn't know how to deal with it. And so he took the one route that he knew would, would alleviate what he was experiencing, which was just to end things permanently. And friends, I, I, I honestly think that like, there may be many of us who are not suicidal by any means, but who still may be taking the Judas route and just covering over our shame without bringing it to Jesus. It's hard. It is. But Jesus is so, like, open for that. Jesus has had to endure the dumbness of saints for thousands of years. Guys, he can take you. He can take one more. What we have to realize is that Jesus' resurrection is the response of our God to a world that has betrayed him in every way imaginable and yet did not abandon, destroy or disconnect himself from that creation. But he said, just, 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 come on. Just stay with me. Just trust me that I'll see you to the other side. Not because you're doing a bang-up job, but because you can trust me. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. There's this hymn that I really, really love. Um, and the last words of it are, are, this, are painting this incredible picture, which I love. I want to read it for you guys. And it goes like this. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. I don't know why, but this uh, this made me think about baptism. And this is such a random little, like, mini points, but I'm going to throw it in here anyways. A lot of us, like, tend to see baptism as like, this is me as a Christian publicly proclaiming my commitment to serve the Lord with all my strength until the day he calls me home. And in reality, in in what scripture says, baptism is not a monument to our own efforts in serving God, 
but it is a monument of God's commitment to bear with us even when we can't do what we're supposed to. It is God saying that when we trust in the forgiving, redeeming love of Jesus, that we share in his death and that we share in his resurrection. And that is the deep tragedy of Judas, that he could only share in death, but never resurrection. And so I, I hate the idea of preaching a sermon that says Judas is just a big old warning tale because it's, it's a story. It's a person. This happened. This is real. This is, this is the word, right? But I don't think it's wrong to eventually settle in a, in a sermon where we talk about the need for community and the need for confession and the need to bringing our shame before Jesus who is welcoming us to bring it to him. I don't think it's wrong to say, Judas tasted death but never life. Let us not be like that. I think that is a great way to close. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to uh, take a couple minutes to confess. And I, I love that we have confession here. It's obviously very uh, topical for what we're discussing. But, but honestly, like, when I, I'm, I'm going to challenge everybody here. Like, may, maybe, you're, maybe your mom is sick. Maybe, maybe something is wrong in your life. Maybe you've got a big job interview tomorrow. I'm going to challenge you that for the next two minutes, I don't want you to pray about that. I want you to confess to God, not so that you can feel the, the pain of having to comb through the imperfections of your life, but so that when you confess, you can taste the forgiveness that God is fully extending to you. And that in a way that Judas couldn't, you could experience the life and not just the death. Um, after that, we're going to uh, worship in three ways. We're going to worship through the Lord's Supper. This is also an incredible blessing to be able to follow up this sermon with this. Just as baptism is this uh, beautiful representation of Christ's uh, taking us in, that we would die with him but also rise up with him. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is very much the same thing. We are not just saying a 10-word prayer. We are literally standing on our feet. We're going to eat bread and drink wine, and we're going to experience with our taste buds, with our hands, with our eyes, with our, with our noses, we're going to experience the death of Christ and all that it has freed us from with the promise of new life to follow. And so I'm going to pray. Um, then we'll go into our two minutes of silence. And then uh, feel free to join us for the Lord's Supper after that.